This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and with me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. It's been another turbulent week for markets as inflation continues to trouble investors. We'll be looking at the impact of oil prices, plus as travel restarts in the UK, how are airlines performing? Bitcoin's taken a tumble amid fears of a ban by Chinese regulators and another intervention by Elon Musk. I've been talking to Kate Rogers and Catherine Davidson from Schroders about ESG investing and why they believe there's now no trade-off between financial returns and societal impact. We hear from Gervais Williams from Mighton Microcap Trust, who explains why shares in UK small cap companies have surged this year, and he discusses three of his favourite stocks. And stick with us till the end because Jen is back with a rather cautionary tale about a holiday home that really is too good to be true. So it's a packed show today, so we'll have to rattle through things. And I know it does seem like we say this every week, Dan, but at the moment, inflation is really troubling markets. Now, the consensus view is it's coming. The bit where you need your crystal ball, though, is trying to figure out if the signs point to a short hot run or something longer and altogether more disconcerting. There are lots of signs to pay attention to at the moment. Dan, commodities prices being a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Metal prices have been very much in the focus for investors. Things like copper and iron ore are really racing ahead. But actually, the oil price is a key contributor to inflation. And you know, there's a couple of things which are just bumbling away in the background, which I wonder are going to become much more important talking points in the coming months. And this is down to the growing number of oil exploration bans. And I wonder if that's going to stoke fears about supply and lead to a higher oil price. Now, that in turn might fuel inflation. And then central banks, such as the US Federal Reserve, might have to act and raise interest rates. And that would be negative for stock markets. So the International Energy Agency says net zero means no need for any new oil and gas fields. It says demand's got to fall by 75%. Uh, to meet climate change goals. And so therefore, if there's any projects that haven't already been uh, approved for development, you just don't need them anymore. And I think that might be a bit of a shock to uh, people who who not really follow the oil um, sector very closely. Spain has just said it's no longer going to issue any new concessions for exploration or producing fossil fuels. And existing concessions can't be extended beyond the end of 2042. Back in 2017, France agreed to phase out fossil fuel production by 2040 and halted the granting of new exploration permits. You know, Ireland has also banned new exploration as of 2018. And last December, Denmark said it would immediately ban new exploration and end its oil and gas production from the Danish North Sea by 2050. So now the UK stopped short of naming a date for when its oil and gas exploration licenses will be stopped in the North Sea and no longer allowed. So instead, new licensing rounds will be subject to a climate compatibility checklist and won't go ahead if they're deemed to be incompatible with the UK's net zero goals. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are going to be paying really close attention to the promises that have been made going forward, and and they are really big goals. 
Um, consumer has been making its presence very felt over the last week or so. I know Target's uh, first quarter sales performance results showed a 23% growth on top of last year's 11% growth in market share. Um, And the desire of the consumer to get out there and spend was cited by Walmart's boss as the main reason that it's reported a really stonking quarter, Dan. Yeah, so Walmart's the world's largest retailer. And it said, yeah, this this first quarter sales is essentially its strongest in history. Um, And it's saying, well, shoppers have been armed with stimulus cash in the US and they've used that to stock up on groceries and other goods. So we saw total revenue was increased by 2.7% year on year to $138 billion. Now that beat analyst forecasts of $132 billion. So sales of non-food items like clothes and electronics and toys was up by 20%. So in a call with analysts, the firm's chief financial officer said that consumers had also started buying more beauty products as lockdown restrictions ease. Now, in particular, teeth whiteners have done very well. So I'm wondering whether people are sort of simply getting ready to get back out into society again. It's because we've been drinking too much tea and red wine in <laughs> yeah. lockdown. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. I've certainly uh, had to reach for the uh, eyebrow tinting stuff recently because, of course, you, you couldn't get in to see beauticians for so long. And, and now, yeah, need a bit of help. Um, <laughs> while we are talking about consumer spend, um, this is something people will need beauty products for because I'm sure that many people have seen pictures on social media or in the press over the last few days of sunny empty glorious beaches where you want to just you know ah enjoy um the first british tourists have been taking advantage of the relaxation of travel restrictions but there's still a lot of uncertainty will we get to go to amberless countries like france or spain or not dan i know you've been looking at how the airlines have been faring Yeah, so on Tuesday, airline shares were doing quite well, picking up. Now, this is despite sort of horror stories about big queues for border control in airports and also Prime Minister Boris Johnson warning people not to go on holiday in Ambulis country. So the shares were were rising because there was sort of chatter that the EU was about to approve the use of vaccine passports to get travel and tourism going again in Europe ahead of this peak summer season. So now as we're recording this now, the EU ambassadors have said that they're going to back proposals to reopen borders for non-essential travel from countries with low infection rates. So as we're recording, the list had yet to be agreed, but actually the airline stocks were falling. Uh, I think there's been a bit of sort of hesitation to, to add the UK to the safe list until they see how much uh, of the Indian COVID uh, related cases are sort of playing out. So potentially um, this list, if, if it's not out by the time you listen to this, the UK might not immediately be on it, which is obviously not good for, for the airline sector, but we'll, we'll see. So really, I don't you know, obviously I don't know about you, Danny, but I, I am desperate to go somewhere where I step off a plane and get hit by that blast of <laughs> hot air. Um, you know, that that's always a sign to me. If, you know, if it's roasting when I get off the plane, I know I'm going to have a good time. And, and I, I just think the airlines are going to see huge demand once these restrictions are lifted. But actually, the thing to look out for for next year and beyond is, is potentially a big rise in airfares. Because so I think that they're going to take advantage of this sort of spike in demand and try and claw back some of that revenue that they lost during the pandemic. 
There is nothing quite like that feeling, is there, of stepping off a plane into that wall of heat. <laughs> Where is the hottest place that you've uh, stepped off a plane? Oh, I don't know. Probably Turkey or, or somewhere like that, I think. so. Yeah, my father-in-law uh, used to live in Arizona, so we would go out to Phoenix quite a lot. And summer in Phoenix, wow, we oh. yes, it's kind of you know fry your egg on the on the bonnet of a car kind of temperature. Um, you know, we do. We just want to get back on a plane and and hear yeah. that. You know, buckle your seatbelts. And while we're talking about planes and turbulence. Um, I tell you one thing that really is experiencing turbulence right now, Bitcoin. I mean, I've just been watching and it's just been going down over a third in the last month. We've had this warning from the Chinese Central Bank and Elon Musk again. Yeah, so I mean, actually, you know, just in between sort of doing a bit of prep for this podcast on Bitcoin uh, and actually coming around and record it, you know, in a matter of hours. Now, Bitcoin is down by 25% so far today as we're doing this. So that's that's actually 45% in 11 days to just over $32,000. And that's incredible, isn't it? You have the idea that um, people are looking for this new place to store that could store the value of, you know, of their wealth and not be sort of um, too correlated to the markets. And yet this is down by 45% in 11 days. I think I wonder whether people are sort of giving Bitcoin an, another appraisal at the moment. But I think it sort of stems with that Tesla and, and its boss, Elon Musk, said they, wouldn't, they would no longer take Bitcoin as a payment for cars, which is a big U-turn after hyping it early this year. Now, Elon Musk was sort of citing the use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining. And so he's taken sort of an environmental stance on it. And then Elon Musk implied on Twitter that, that Tesla might have sold some of its Bitcoin holding, which he's sort of since denied. Um, the fact that Tesla was getting involved in, in cryptocurrencies was a big signal to lots of investors that this is sort of this cryptocurrency is being taken very seriously. And now this is all seems to be unraveling. And we've got Chinese regulators as well, sort of tightening restrictions that ban financial institutions and payment companies from providing services related to cryptocurrency. So, you know, altogether, we've got something that was touted as a hedge against inflation. So one would have thought, you know, in the current environment where we're talking about rising inflation, that Bitcoin would be in demand. Um, now saying that actually, you know, people would normally put that money into gold as the natural hedge against inflation, but they've been putting it into Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin's now being sold down, it's quite interesting to see that gold is up by 11% since the end of March. And I'm wondering if people are switching their money out of the crypto and into the precious metal. But uh, yeah, so you know, definitely one to watch. And if, if you're invested in Bitcoin, I guess you're experiencing the true meaning of volatility. My dog walker is invested in Bitcoin. Go I mean, <laughs> it, it's interesting when you actually start to have a conversation with people, exactly who has decided to invest in Bitcoin. And when you start to discuss the risks and you realize that sometimes people really haven't thought long and hard enough about the risks. Um, well, we're talking about environmental concerns because obviously that's what uh, Elon Musk um, cited as the reason for no longer accepting Bitcoin. Let's really shine a light on ESG investing. Now, more and more companies are screening investments based on sustainable criteria, but what does it mean for returns? 
I've been speaking to Kate Rogers, Head of Sustainability at Kazanov Capital, and Catherine Davidson, Fund Manager of the Global Sustainable Growth Fund, both part of the Shredders Group. And I started by asking Kate to explain exactly what ESG means. Yeah, of course. So um, ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And when you're thinking about investing in a way that takes into account ESG, so ESG investing, what you're doing is thinking about environmental, social and governance factors when you're making the investment decision. So you're not just considering whether a company makes money, you're also thinking through how environmental and social changes affects that company's prospects and how well or otherwise that company is, is governed. So we've seen a rapid adoption of ESG investing over the last decade and accelerated over the last couple of years. And it's been helped by lots of evidence suggesting that including these factors, this environmental, social and governance um, analysis um, actually reduces risk. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to invest in a company, you shouldn't just look at how much money it makes. You also need to know whether it's treating its workers well, whether it's polluting the local river, um, whether it's being managed well, because these can be really meaningful financial risks. And we really saw that in action with investors making a decision not to invest in Deliveroo during the IPO. And sometimes it, it's really obvious the issues when it comes to the E, the S or the G, but sometimes it's not. So what criteria do you use? So we think it's important to measure impact. So real world impact rather than just looking at the individual factors um, as they sort of stand, so not just looking at whether they've got an environmental policy or they've got a policy around uh, good work, but actually how that um, how that comes into force, how that actually creates a real world impact. If I can just jump in here as well. Um, I, yeah, so I was just going to add to that, that the tricky thing about this area is that almost nothing is clear cut. So when you're talking about metrics or criteria, um, it's really difficult to boil these kind of decisions down to um, you know, numbers or particular disclosures, because ultimately the questions you're asking are often down to people's moral or personal judgments about how they weigh up the strengths and weaknesses of an individual company. You know, even with Deliveroo, which I agree is a pretty clear cut example, there will be people who argue that gig working gives people flexibility to earn additional money without you know, tying themselves to a contract and is ideal for working parents, et cetera. And um, there's almost always a counter argument to be made. So we think it's quite nuanced and that's why as Kate says we have to look at kind of outcomes metrics as well as um, as well as inputs. Uh, and Catherine some people will be surprised that oil companies can make the list sometimes. Um, yeah I think this this it often comes down to which list you're looking at and how you're judging the companies. Um, so some index providers look at sort of industry relative. So you can get the best house in a bad neighborhood. So you might get the least dirty oil company, for example, um, or there may be sort of different ways of looking at it. So it's focused on regulatory risk, which might be higher in one geography than another, for example. So they're not always intuitive in the kind of stocks that are off or on those. And it's kind of one of, a, one of the reasons that we think it's really important to be active investors in this space rather than sort of just looking at the ratings. 
And Kate, some people feel that once you get money involved, then change can really start to be fast forwarded. Change is created from within almost. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a really interesting debate within purpose-led investors is whether they should be investing in things like oil companies and trying to accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy by standing up at AGMs, by putting forward votes, you know, resolutions, by engaging with the company, using the fact that they are owning the shares to create change, or whether they should be standing aside from a moral perspective and saying, actually, I don't want to be owning an oil company right now because I can see that it's creating part of the problem that we're trying to trying to trying to solve for. So that I think that sort of divest versus engage debate is alive and kicking. And I would always say to the to the investors that I work with that it's that it's not necessarily um, one way is the right way and the other way is the wrong way. It's actually you probably need both in order to create change. And, uh, you know, as we say, that the power of an active manager is that we have that decision to not to invest. Unlike passive managers where they have to own everything, we can uh, take a stance and say, actually, you know, that, that doesn't meet our criteria. Our engagement have, has failed. We don't believe that company is actively transitioning to a just and sustainable future. Now, as you say, I mean, ethical investing has been around for years, but a lot of investors in the past have thought that if they invested looking through the lens of their ethics, they were going to miss out in terms of the return. Is that changing now? Are these ESG investments returning as much as other investments? Yeah, there's definitely been some scepticism historically, um, people thinking that by excluding certain industries or sectors, maybe you limit your investable universe, or maybe you end up with big tilts towards certain areas of the market. Um, the long-term data is mostly on um, exclusion strategies, but that does suggest that actually there's not much difference in return from cutting out things like fossil fuels and tobacco. Um, and you can always pick a time period or a certain segment of the market where it has made a difference, um, but on balance, um, if anything, the, the exclusionary strategies have outperformed. But I think the more um, important debate is around the sort of next generation of ESG investing as we've gone beyond exclusions, um, looking sort of more proactively for those companies that are transitioning, that are having a positive impact. And last year was a real proof point for this where we saw extremely strong performance by sustainable and ESG strategies across the board because the kind of companies that were um, acting responsibly fared much, much better during the pandemic. Are the returns sustainable long term? Because I've heard a lot of discussions saying, you know, these ESG funds are actually outperforming in some cases. Is it a flash in the pan? Um, I would say this, but I really don't think so. Um, and I think actually it's kind of part of the way we see the meaning of the word sustainable is that we're looking for companies where the profits are sustainable in all senses of the word. And we only think that you can achieve um, sort of sustainable returns and profits in a financial sense by also having this sort of broader corporate responsibility. You know, if you, if you think about it, I tend to describe it as a kind of corporate karma. 
Um, so you think about a company um, that maybe exploits or ignores a certain stakeholder in the short term and can maximize its profits, but that comes back to bite it. So in the case of your employees, for example, that's an easy one. So you pay the bare minimum, um, you don't invest in training or anything like that, um, you have poor working conditions, and that's that's fine and that may be profit maximizing when the labor market is quite loose. Um, but as soon as employees have a choice, then you're more likely to see higher turnover, which is really expensive for a business. You'll lose the best talent um, and uh, you might even experience things like strikes and walkouts. So it, it might there might be a conflict between shareholders and stakeholders short term, but in the long term, we think they're perfectly aligned. So sustainable returns should mean sustainable returns, as it were. That karma is really important. And I know a lot of companies have focused on the E, maybe to the exclusion of the S and G. And I know there's been a lot of discussion about the potential impact on certain sectors. For example, if you see a transition for a company away from coal mining, perhaps they're focusing on wind power instead coal mining employs a lot more people. And do you have to look in the round at how that company is looking to transition away and take their workforce with them? Yeah, it's certainly a, tif- a difficult question. And there's always, as I said, sort of a balance to be had between harms on one side and benefits on the other. And you know, any employer is you know, has some benefit in the fact that they provide jobs and, and work and stuff. But This is a sort of age old economic problem that as you mechanize agriculture, you put people out of work, etc. And the economy will have to make this transition. And the best thing we can do is kind of push the companies to provide things like training for their workforces as much as possible to help reskill them. Um, But some of it has to come down to the responsibility of government and the wider the wider sort of social sphere. Um, But for example, Schroders have recently done a big engagement with all of our automotive holdings where we've been talking about the transition from combustion engines to electric vehicles, which are um, much easier to manufacture in terms of the number of moving parts and the number of people you need on a production line. Um, So in theory, you'd be laying off quite a lot of your workforce. And the most sort of leading edge um, companies are providing a lot of retraining for their manufacturing staff in things like software and coding to help them make that transition when they want to um, and being very clear about their communication with the others you know about um, sort of voluntary redundancy plans etc so it, it has to be done but it can be done in a way that minimizes harm. Okay to some sectors and some countries better at this than others? Um, I think from an, from an investor point of view, there is certainly um, uh, more focus on it from Europe. Um, so uh, I think we're seeing a lot of movement in terms of the European risk policy and um, investors being very interested in sustainability. Um, what's been interesting is that Asia, which has sort of historically been treated a little bit like, you know, they're behind, um, uh, are actually making some really significant strides forward, both from a corporate perspective, um, but also in the investor beliefs as well. We're seeing really strong growth in interest in investing in a way that aligns with sustainable values and um, aligns with sort of environmental and social concerns. 
Um, so I think, you know, yes, there are differences, but I think the, the trend is clear wherever you look around the globe. I totally agree with the sort of broad picture. Um, I was just going to say that I think it so much comes down to a company by company basis still. And often you do see um, Europe in particular getting sort of higher scores. Um, but sometimes that's just because the companies disclose more. So in places like the UK, you're required to disclose your gender pay gap and you're required to have a tax policy and things like that. The fact that you disclose your pen gender pay gap, um, as far as I'm concerned, shouldn't get you a tick if your gender pay gap is massive and going in the wrong direction. <laughs> so it's not always that that simple. And I, I've actually got a lot of investments in emerging markets and other parts of the world where maybe they don't look as good on those kind of tick box metrics, but the companies are really forthcoming about what they are actually doing. And in some cases, you know, those if you're working in a in quite a poor country, sometimes the corporate responsibility piece is um, is really well embedded in the company because they've been part of the development of the wider economy. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, sort of say that that broad brush view is is always applicable. It's just about getting in the weeds and doing your homework. So for a, a private investor trying to make decisions. Would it help if there was some kind of global criteria that all companies engaged with? Um, it would be lovely to sort of make, wage a magic wand and have that solution. But um, as I said earlier, it's, it's so um, subjective because you know, one private investor may believe that you know, contraception or alcohol or pesticides are um, big evils, whereas another investor may regard them as having a positive contribution. So no big global standards body can tell you what you believe um, and you know, what you want to invest in. Uh, so that's the tricky bit. I think the bit where we are getting standardization is in kind of accounting standards so that when people report things like carbon emissions there, you can compare one of them to the other and you're not getting apples versus oranges and then you as an end investor can decide what you want to do with that information um, so I think yeah at that, at that higher level the data standardization is great but the actual decision making as as it has always been in investing I mean you don't, you don't rely on an external body to tell you which stocks are attractively valued or not um, so yeah still need still need to do the work I'm afraid I think if I'm talking to a private investor who wants to understand where to start from, the framework that I find most useful is the Impact Management Projects framework, which is an ABC framework. And it stands for A, avoid harm, B, benefit stakeholders, and C, contribute to solutions. So when I'm talking to, you know, Bob down the road, I'll say, okay, what, what are the things that you want to avoid? Do you want to invest in a way that generally benefits society, so general responsible investment? And is there anything in particular that you feel strongly that you would like to contribute to in terms of whether it's the sustainable development goals, you know, climate change? Um, so you get that sort of what do you want to stay away from and what do you want to actually accelerate change towards, as well as having a, a core of sort of responsible business. And I think that certainly when we've been talking to clients um, has been really helpful to frame the decisions and the, the way that you can look at your investments through a sort of sustainable investment lens. Clearly, there's a lot more interest from investors in this sustainable investing. 
Is that because the returns have improved or is that because society has changed? I think it's a bit of both. I think it would be um, it would be too cynical to say that it's all down to returns. But as we sort of mentioned earlier, um, that historic scepticism about the trade-off between value and values um, has certainly been eased by last year's very strong performance. So I think a lot of people um, who haven't historically really looked at this space have now come round to it. But I do think it's part of a broader change. You know, we've seen in um, other areas of consumption, for example, people caring a lot more about um, buying green products, you know, electric vehicles, um, paying attention all the way through the pandemic to how companies were treating their employees, etc. Um, and there does just seem to be a lot more of a social conscience, um, you know, perhaps this may be unfair, but perhaps more among, among younger consumers. And if people are doing that in their consumption and in the choices of who to work for, then why wouldn't they also do it in their investments? Ladies, that's been really interesting to talk to you both. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having us. You're most welcome. Good to talk. So I tell you one big consumer trend that's still firing up the investment world, and that's streaming. Yeah, it really is. It's been a huge week for deals. Um, we've seen some big stock moves as well off the back of the announcements. And the first one that got people talking was by telecom giant AT&T. Now, they said that they were going to combine Warner Media with Discovery. And a deal would create a new business which would be separate from AT&T and could be valued at as much as $150 billion dollars. Now, AT&T, of course, owns CNN, HBO and Warner Brothers after it snapped up Time Warner three years ago. And Discovery has the Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, TLC and others. Now, in a press call on Monday, analysts were told that the two companies spend a combined $20 billion every year on content. And if you compare that with Netflix, well, Netflix spends about $17 billion. So this would put them toe to toe. And content has become king. That's one of the reasons that Netflix said that they didn't put on as many subscribers and many analysts thought that they would because they hadn't been able to produce new content because, of course, lockdown meant that shooting schedules were disrupted. And it's clearly king, and Jeff Bezos understands that because the next day came the news that Amazon is in talks to buy MGM. Now, of course, that's the business that makes James Bond, and the deal would be worth $9 billion. This would strengthen Amazon Prime at a time when streaming is getting more and more competitive when you think of all the names now in that field. It is absolutely incredible. And Amazon is spending a lot of cash at the moment because it knows how important the streaming service is to keep their prime customers. And their customers that often then take a little visit over to the shopping site, put something in the basket and use their prime deal to get delivery. It's also been spending money on more content. So it's rolled over the live TV rights deal with the Premier League to 2025. And it's reportedly paying a billion dollars a year for exclusive rights to show the US National Football League until 2023. So an awful lot of money going on making sure that what is available to watch either the back catalogue or new product is enough to get more subscribers. And this is really gearing up to be quite a fight. 
Yeah, I mean, we, obviously Amazon is uh, is rumoured to be one of the parties interested in either buying or, or taking a big chunk in BT Sport, which BT sort of indicated it might be willing to um, to offload. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely lots going on in this streaming market. Big business, there's definitely lots of money to made. But actually, it's not just big business where investors can find opportunities. No, there are lots of opportunities to be had in the world of smaller companies. And I know, Dan, you've been talking to an expert in this field about performance and some of the stocks with great promise. Let's hear what he had to say. So I'm pleased to welcome Gervais Williams, the head of equities at Premier Mighton and a well-known fund manager. So Gervais, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Good morning. So it's been quite the year for small caps. The FTSE small cap index has returned about 15% year to date. And that's roughly double that what you've seen for the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250. So Gervais, I just wanted to ask you to start off with, why is it that smaller companies have done so well this year? And whether do you think there's much more to come from this part of the market in 2021? Yeah, I think there's two reasons, really. The nature of small quoted companies is that they are uh, more nimble, uh, particularly they're able to grow often when the world is uh, in a difficult period, as we've had recently with the global recession. So I think some of these small companies which have been performing strongly have been able to buck the economic trend and still continue to grow. But I think overlaying that, we've also got the recovery of the UK economy generally, and most particularly the UK stock market. Um, I think the UK stock market's been somewhat overlooked by uh, investors during the period of Brexit. Um, and I think as that's come to an end, I think that's also boosted the opportunity. So to summarise, I think uh, the risk reward ratio is that uh, whilst we've had some recovery of UK small cap share prices, my own view is there's plenty more left in uh, to go for in future years. Yeah. So so one of the funds that you run is called the Mighton UK Microcap Trust. It had a bit of a disappointing time in 2018 and 2019, but more recently, it's really burst to life. So uh, is there something you've done to change how it's run that's uh, sort of led to this uh, much greater performance? Uh, in a word, no, actually. Um, the nature of the way that Martin Turner and myself run that fund is that we tend to select for companies which are going to generate uh, very significant uh, cash returns in the short to medium term. So this isn't trying to pick into uh, pick out stocks which are likely to grow very fast at, 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 you know, on ongoing losses. It's very much about quoted companies which are probably overlooked because they're too small for most institutions, and most particularly that they're getting to the end of the investment phase and getting into the cash payback phase. Now, what happened during the latter part of 2018, clearly the markets are down, but particularly 2019 when the markets recovered, but the microcap stocks generally didn't, uh, was related to the uncertainty of Brexit at that stage. There was a, uh, no real leadership in terms of uh, uh, governments at that stage. And there was a real worry that the UK would go through Brexit without any uh, real uh, certainty as to how uh, whether we're going to get an agreement or not. So I think that was a really uh, an, a period of really great uncertainty. And when you overlay that with the, with the extra kind of confusion from the gating of the Woodford funds, where a lot of unquoted companies held that back, but, but people confused unquoted small caps with quoted small caps. I think we just saw that many of our share prices weren't being reflecting uh, the successes of the underlying companies. Um, what happened during 2020 was, or in spite of the, uh, the uncertainty of, of the pandemic uh, and the global recession, actually many of these companies uh, continued to succeed, generated cash. And as that came through, uh, that led to obviously very strong performance we've seen in the uh, Mighton UK Microcap Trust recently. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting, if anything, is that um, we think that that's just 
beginning of a trend and there's a much bigger trend behind it. Yeah. Just in terms of the stocks that you've got in that fund or, or some of your other funds, um, is there any sort of ones that really stand out at the moment, that really excite you? I wonder if you should perhaps give some of our listeners some examples of the, the things that you're invested in. Yeah, so I mean, there's three uh, which um, come to mind. Um, the first is a company called Amina Technology. It's a company which has been in the portfolio, again, like many others, for many years. Um, but most, most particularly, uh, it's uh, helping uh, TV companies uh, address the, uh, the changing uh, sort of streaming landscape. Uh, and it's you know got a lot of major customers. Um, what's been interesting recently is it was looking to make an acquisition from a receivership company in the US called Moby TV. Um, unfortunately, that didn't come off. But the very fact that it was close to making that acquisition has raised its profile with many customers in the US. And we think that will accelerate its growth going forward. And yet its current valuation, it's on a P of 11.2 for the year to November 21, according to Bloomberg, with a yield of two and a half, just, in our view, understates the potential of the business. Uh, perhaps another another example may be Helium One. So as you know, Helium is used uh, not just for balloons, but for lots of technology applications, lots of circuitry and and and, and such like needs uh, helium around it um, there's a global uh, question mark about where we're going to be getting a lot of the helium for the future uh, as it happens helium one is uh, drilling out uh, a, a nearly unique area of geology in Tanzania um, and as that comes through we think it'll we put it'll be put in the position where it'll be a potentially a global leader in the supply of hydrogen, just because it happens to be, uh, you know, fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, a third one maybe is, is Rebold Resources. Um, uh, this is a company which has already discovered what appears to be the largest uh, oil field in the UK, onshore oil field in the UK, since 1973, the Witch Farm uh, development. Uh, it's coming, uh, it's now doing its testing. We expect that testing to come into production in the short to medium term. Uh, again, particularly, uh, this is a company where we, we, we are sensitive to the need to, for climate change. But if you use onshore assets, particularly when you're using reusing you know, uh, facilities which have been used before, this is very close to Hull, um, then effectively that means that uh, we get some energy which then allows us to invest and generate uh, the low uh, carbon future. So extraordinary, again, that this kind of share price hasn't recovered as much as we might have expected. It just shows the very overlooked nature of the UK microcap sector and the pop opportunity for picking out individual winners, which have not just you know local market positions, but potentially global market positions in different sectors. Do you prefer to, to where possible, to back uh, a business that's already profitable, um, positive free cash flow, or are you, are you happy to sort of back a, a company that's got a really bright idea, but um, positive earnings maybe some way down the line? I mean, what we're looking for really is companies which are, uh, you know, if, if it doesn't hit its targets immediately, then they're not needing emergency rights issue and such like. So we look for companies which are already well financed, uh, ideally companies which are already uh, moving into profit or generating a profit, uh, and therefore, when you look at back to 2018, 2019, you know, we didn't need to change the portfolio. The companies uh, which succeeded in 2020 were many of the companies which were in the portfolio at that stage. And so we didn't need to change the portfolio. We just needed a bit more time for the upside potential to come through. Do you, do you, I mean, if any of your companies in your portfolio at the moment, if they needed to raise more money, do you think that the, the sort of the, the improvement in performance of UK stocks in general um, might raise their chances of getting support from investors for for more money or do you think actually raising money for microcap stocks is still quite hard to do 
No, I think there's a renewed interest. I think what we've seen in the last 12 months particularly is that the traditional leadership maybe of some of the, uh, the very largest companies in the US, the technology leaders in the US, has been a bit more intermittent. I think there's been a lot of uh, clients who have got a lot of assets which are very correlated to that trend and are looking to diversify. Uh, and the strategy of investing in microcaps, which can buck the economic trend, which are overlooked in valuation, which can grow, uh, uh, you know, when they when they grow, their share prices can rise uh, very substantially, uh, is becoming more attractive. And I think that's why you've seen uh, the UK, the Mike and UK microcap trust move to a premium recently. Uh, and I think that just reflects the uh, new trend, which we think is going to be with us probably for quite a long period, uh, certainly a number of years, uh, possibly a decade or two. Brilliant. Well, Jay, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Now, we've already been talking a bit about travel today. Uh, Jen is with us with another rather crazy story, um, which, which might make you think a bit, Jen. Absolutely. Um, yeah, as we're able to book staycations and many B&Bs and hotels are already booked up for 2021, I've been thinking about booking a trip myself. Then I read this story. Um, YouTube prankers John Peters and Archie Manners have shone a light on Airbnb's verification process. They've got in touch with a doll's house interior designer, and yes, that is an actual profession, where the miniature house has working clocks, readable books, and the paintings are actually painted. They took a few photos of the rooms with some cheeky added features like a credit card as a bath mat, a normal sized water bottle in the hallway, which they said was a sculpture on the listing, and AirPods on the piano, giving away that this is in fact too small to stay in. They set the address in Clapham, which was one of the prankers' actual addresses, listed it for £87 a night, and Airbnb listed it as verified and tested, despite the fact that each room was smaller than an, air, uh, an iPad screen. Within a few days, the YouTubers took £3,400 in bookings. They gave all the money back, of course, but it does make you think. So far, we've not seen any response from Airbnb. It really does make you think. And these pictures are, are just incredible. It was the water bottle that got me. Uh, yeah, mm. I think I would have thought twice at that. Definitely, yeah. It was an interesting addition uh, to, to any interior. It's a humongous water bottle, but... Yeah, it was a really interesting story. Well, thanks, Jen. And that's all for this week. So next week, we'll be taking a look at how different sectors are performing now. Another set of restrictions have been relaxed. So thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Music